Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. A report was released in September as a joint effort of Prosperity Now and the Institute for Policy Studies, and it's called The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class. We have one of the co-authors with us today, Diedrich Dasanti Muhammad, who is Senior Fellow, Racial Wealth Divide at Prosperity Now. Diedrich's personal and professional experience have specially equipped him to see clearly into the related issues of this report. In addition to his work with Prosperity Now and the Institute for Policy Studies, Diedrich, in part inspired by his parents' involvement in civil rights work, has worked with the NAACP, where he was executive director of the Freedom Financial Center and senior director of the Economic Department. And we shouldn't forget his time as the National Crisis Coordinator for Al Sharpton's National Action Team. His time with the Institute for Policy Studies was under the tutelage of Chuck Collins, who was a guest here on Spirit in Action about a year ago, talking about his book, Born on Third Base. All of that to say that Diedrich Desanti Mohammed has learned the lessons and done the work to make him a leader in his field, and he joins us now by cell phone from the Washington, D.C. area to talk about the racial wealth divide. Diedrich, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. And now you're part of Prosperity Now. You're a senior fellow. I'm not even sure what a senior fellow is. Were you ever a junior fellow? I was never a junior fellow. I was the director of the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative at Prosperity Now. I just came to Prosperity Now about two years ago, and myself and a woman named Lillian Singh, we both came over from the NAACP Economic Department while I was the senior director, and she was a director at the National NAACP Economic Department. And we came over about two years ago to start the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative at Prosperity Now. And my first year, I was director of the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative, and then this, and she was associate director. And then in 2017, she was made director, and I was made senior fellow, which really just meant that I had more opportunity to focus on analysis and talking about the issues and had less focus on actually administrating and managing the uh, programmatic work we do, which is what Lillian Singh oversees, my partner here. Well, thankfully, she's doing that part of it, too. It's extremely valuable, but if you can dig into the real material that you're trying to bring out for the public, that's all the better. So the report, The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class, what portion of that, how many hands were in creating that? Yeah, this is actually a follow-up to a report we did last year called The Ever-Growing Gap. And that last year was our first big report at Prosperity Now that brought together the policy team, the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative, 
And then we joined with a think tank that I used to be a part of called Institute for Policy Studies and worked with their economic inequality program. They have a website there called inequality.org and a man named Chuck Collins who's been doing work on economic equity for years and has been a mentor to me. We brought together Institute for Policy Studies, Prosperity Now, to do this report ever, of the ever-growing gap in 2016. And then our second report, The Road to Zero Wealth, is this report that came out in 2017. You know, actually, that name seems kind of dangerous to me. I think some people are going to take it as advocacy, The Road to Zero Wealth. And actually, what you're trying to point out is there's this, a dangerous road ahead of us where things are tanking in a way that's going to be really damaging not only to minorities in this country who are going to become the majority, but to the whole nation. Let's talk about who this is aimed at. Who, who are you analyzing the data for in this report, The Road to Zero Wealth? Tell us about the scope of the data that backs up this report. Yeah, let me also note that the uh, full title is The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class kind of give a more complete picture of what we're trying to get across in this report. And, you know, I think there's several things to respond to your question. I mean, there's different areas that we try to highlight around economic inequality, racial wealth inequality, and we can talk, about, talk a bit about this. One of the things I think is most important about this report is that it's a report meant for the general public, for people who aren't specialists and economics are, are, are getting their PhD in sociology, but something that people can look at quickly. They can see some really, I think, well-designed, beautiful graphs and even kind of, you know, even drawings to help highlight the key points of this report. Uh, I think it's important. You know, there's some great work that's done by academics, but oftentimes it's so challenging to get through. People don't understand the findings that come out of those. And so we try to do a report for the general public, including politicians, policymakers, journalists, so there can be a much more clear understanding of the challenges that so many Americans are facing, even as we're theoretically in the uh, seventh, eighth year of an economic recovery. And I'm going to state what I think is the overall point of this report. And since you're a senior fellow, I want you to grade me from, you know, I got an A, B, C, D. I'll, I'll stand by whatever grading you give me. I think, <laughs> okay. I think that the lesson that I'm drawing out of here is that, number one, there is a racial wealth gap, and that's an important way to look at the dysfunction in our country, and that it's getting worse, and that bodes bad things for all of the country very notably the minorities. There's, but there's a breakdown of the system that is underway. Okay, did I get a, an A, a B, a B minus, a C plus? What did I get? I'll give, you, I'll give you a B plus. I think the one component that we're also trying to help highlight in the report that wasn't mentioned was we try to also help, and you know, we should get into in the beginning the difference of you know, racial wealth inequality versus racial income inequality and, and why those uh, differences are important to note. But also, as part of that, we also try to help highlight there's all, all, all the time these questions about how the American middle class is doing. And we try to highlight in this report our analysis of what we think it means to be middle class when looking at wealth, because most of the time middle class is defined by income we think that economic indicator actually masks some of the inequality that exists in society and the economic insecurity 
that those who might make middle income but are in asset poverty are facing. And so we think that wealth is actually an important way to look at who is in the middle class and as this country increases uh, its diversity, you know, what it means to have a racial wealth divide with a growing demographic that is more and more people of color. And when you talk about income spread, the income divide versus wealth divide, I think you'd better make clear to people because most people think they're the same thing. So I could be earning $50,000 a year. And if I have $100,000 saved up in equity in my house and so on, that feels very different than if I'm making 50000 a year and I've got $1,000 in savings. Could you explain how big the wealth divide is versus how big the income divide is? Yeah, most people estimate that income inequality, and there is still strong racial income inequality where African-Americans and Latinos are making about 60 cents on every dollar that white Americans make. So, you know, that's still a significant gap. But the gap, in, and it's usually around a $20,000, something like that gap in terms of median household income. But if you're looking at wealth, you know, this report focused on wealth from 1983 to 2013. There's been some new wealth data that's come out I'll talk about, but this report focused again from 83 to 2013. We saw the median wealth for blacks was $1,700. The median wealth for Latinos was $2,000, but the median wealth for whites was $116,000. And so you see how that divide is much greater, how there's a much bigger gap when you're comparing $2,000 to $116,000 versus 30-something thousand dollars to about sixty, sixty-one thousand dollars, and so, so there's a much greater, stronger wealth divide than there is an income divide, and we think that really helps. Actually, you know, I always say that the number one, the foundation of racial inequality in this country, is racial economic inequality, and always has been, and that the foundation of racial economic inequality is racial wealth inequality, and so those are the points that this uh, report is trying to highlight. And could you spell out what wealth means? I mean, there's economic wealth, which is what I think we're talking about here. But what does that mean in tangible terms? What is wealth? Sure. And so generally we look at people's assets minus their debts. And so we're looking at what would be, you know, your assets that would be added up. It's what's in your savings account, what's in your retirement. If you own a home, the equity in your home, meaning the value of your home minus the debt you have in your home putting all these things together, you know, minus your credit card debt, you know, minus whatever other types of debts you might have, uh, college debts, what have you, and then that would be your wealth. And so, you know, when you do all that, you get a median wealth for blacks of $1,700. You get a median wealth for whites in 2013 at $116,000. Which is an immense gap, and that affects all kinds of things that one can do in one's life. If I own my home, there are certain things I can do, whereas I'm at the whim of a landlord if I'm renting. That's just one step. How else does it affect how much it costs just to live? Well, yeah, I mean, I think when people hear $1,700, $2,000 of median wealth, and again, for 2016, we have a rough estimation of the newest data of wealth, because wealth data doesn't come out every year. We generally get ours from a survey that comes out every three years. Things have gone up, which is good for blacks and Latinos. Median wealth for Latinos is about 6000 Median wealth for blacks is about 4000 And for whites, median wealth is about 140000 But, you know, what does all that mean? You know, wealth is something that allows you to kind of ride out the ups and downs of the economy. 
And wealth also is what allows you to take advantage of uh, possible uh, opportunities, socioeconomic opportunities. So if you have some wealth, that might be, you know, you might be able to pull together ten, twenty thousand dollars so you can buy a home, which is a great source of wealth for many Americans. Or so you can maybe start a business or utilize some of your wealth to help you strengthen, uh, you know, your travels to help you with your contacts and your professional work. But also wealth helps you if you, you know, if you have a car accident and you see at, you know, whether you're going to level $2,000 or $4,000, if you have a car accident, your wealth could be wiped out if you just have a wealth level of $2,000 or $4,000. Or if you lose your job and you're out of work for a month, that, you know, for a household that has $4,000, $5,000 of wealth, that can completely wipe out your wealth. But if you have a, you know, median wealth of $150,000, you can probably get through that economic down point uh, much easier. And I think, and that is why we've seen that for African Americans and Latinos, it takes them much longer for their wealth to stop declining after the Great Recession. Uh, you know, these ups and downs in the economy are much more devastating to low-wealth households. Which makes all the difference. In, in the last study, what, what the road to zero wealth is highlighting is a period which is still relatively early in the recovery from the Great Recession. It's a period where there's still a lot of recovery going on. And in the final three years of Obama's terms, there was still a lot of progress being made, as the numbers you've quoted show. I think you bring up a very interesting point that I don't think there's been enough analysis and discussion about this, that this new wealth data is highlighting the kind of some of the strongest rebound we've had since the Great Recession happened during the last three years between 2013 and 2016, where we saw, you know, white wealth go up by almost $25,000, and we saw black and Latino wealth double, though it's still not very high. And it's only a couple thousand if they had so little wealth, but I think People look back and will, you know, note, you know, uh, you know how long it took the recovery to happen, but how strong it was occurring at the last, you know, in 2013 to 2016. And so then the question is, will this bounce back continue, or have we kind of hit a plateau and we're going to either kind of maintain where we are, or is the challenges of another recession or a dip? And so this this will be interesting to, to follow over the next few years. And, you know, we bandy about numbers, but these are real consequences on the ground for people. It is really a question, can I get medical care or can I afford to shower so that I can have a job? I mean, having resources at one's fingertips makes all the difference in terms of launching into success. You mentioned Chuck Collins, and I did interview him about his book, Born on Third Base. Since he comes from one of those families that has a lot of money, he gave it away. He chose to equalize himself and to work for equality. But some of us were born, I was definitely from a lower-income family. I mean, I'm one of 12 kids, and my dad was maintenance man for gas stations. We were not what you call even middle class. And I see the difference in perspective. Out of the 12 of us, I'm the only one to go to college. And so I've got a foot up because I'm white. So, you know, there's a lot of doors that are open up to me that are half closed to other people. I did get a good education. I was living in a city where there's uh, good schools and it wasn't a challenge to get through school. Although my brothers and sisters might disagree with me. So what does middle class mean to you operationally? And in terms of this report, again, we're talking about the road to zero wealth. Yeah, well, and also let me highlight, again, I think the 
One of the most important aspects of understanding racial wealth inequality is that, you know, the worst aspect of racial wealth inequality isn't that an individual is in, let's say, asset poverty, meaning has very little wealth. It's not even that just their household is in asset poverty. But when you look at racial wealth inequality, the great challenge is that their entire community has so little wealth. And so they don't have the kind of, uh, you know, family or friends that can be supportive during economic times, at least be supportive with financial resources. Though we do see that actually in black Latino communities that they're more likely to give money, even if they have lower income and lower wealth relative to white people. But the, the challenge is, that the entire community is in asset poverty, oftentimes has less income. So even when people are being successful and have, you know, have a six-figure job or what have you, they're still not able to see the same type of benefits from their success because, as I like to say, you know, they might not get, you know, $15,000 of support from their parents to help buy a house. They're probably helping their aunt pay rent. And that means that not only are they missing that $15,000, they also might be missing that 500 a month that could have been going into retirement, but instead is going to help, you know, is going to help a family member keep, you know, positive shelter over their heads. And so, you know, this is the challenge of racial wealth inequality. It's not even how individual households and families are doing, but the fact that they're so disconnected to uh, resources. And we're in a weird situation in this country where you have individual private wealth, but then there's also kind of government and communal wealth. And we do a weird thing in this country where actually those who get access to communal wealth, whether that could be a strong public school system, safe neighborhoods, even uh, being close to job opportunities, that seems to be connected to those who have the most private wealth. We don't ensure that our communal wealth is going to those who have the least amount of wealth. And so it kind of uh, it doubles up on that inequality. And all those things make the racial wealth divide so deep. And I think... It has what has brought us in 2017, where we still have great racial inequality, even after so many struggles and so much work has been done to bridge racial inequality. The country hasn't been willing to deal with the economics, which, again, I think is the foundation of racial inequality. So we have, you know, ongoing disparities at every level that I think are deeply connected to wealth inequality. And overall, the picture from 1983 until, I guess, now 2016, we have data for that. Is it true that blacks and Latinos have actually had a decrease in wealth when it's adjusted for inflation? Is Has there actually been a decrease in wealth for the community as a whole? Yes. Yeah, so definitely before African-Americans, well, blacks and Americans and Latinos between 1983 and 2013, median wealth for blacks in 1983 was 6,800, 2013 was 1,700. For Latinos, it was 4,000 in 1983, and then 2,000 in 2013. Now, the most recent data, well, and for whites between that time period, whites' median wealth in 1983 was 102,000. In 2013, it was about 117,000, even with the great losses uh, in the Great Recession. So we saw that, uh, you know, though whites lost a good amount of wealth during the Great Recession, they never got to the point where they were worse off than they were in 1983 while uh, African-Americans were almost only at a third of the wealth that they were at in 1983, and the Latinos only had a half of the wealth that they had in 1983. Now, there has been a little bit of a rebound in 2016, and so now Latinos uh, have a median wealth of about 6,000, so they're actually above where they were in 1983. But African-Americans, even with their rebound, still are strongly behind 
where they were in 1983. Again, about $7,000 in 1983, 6800 And in 2013, they have an estimated median wealth of $4,000. So African-Americans still haven't caught up to back where they were uh, over 30 years ago. And let's not forget the overall objective. The, your name of your organization, Prosperity Now, and the website, prosperitynow.org. The website for the group that Chuck Collins associated with is inequality.org. And we're trying to get rid of inequality, and we're trying to establish prosperity now. There's some progress, I guess, since in the last three years or in the previous three years. I'm not sure 2017 is going to have great stats. But the objective is the well-being of the community here. Some people might say, well, that's just a minority problem, but that has dire consequences for society as a whole because of the demographics, how they're changing in this country. Part of the, the name of the report is about the hollowing out of America's middle class. Increasingly, because of the demographics in this country, if blacks and Latinos and American Indians and Asians are not a solid part of the middle class, then we don't have a middle class because demographically that's, it's, it's hollowing out, as you say. Could you talk a little bit about the data related to that? Sure. You know, most people estimate that America will be majority minority by 2043. And by that point, you will have probably 40, 45 percent of the population, African-American and Latino. You know, and then you can add in another, well, I don't know, 5 to 8 percent for Asian-American. That's how you get the majority minority and, you know, maybe 1 percent Native American. And, you know, people oftentimes talk about how 70 percent of the economy is uh, consumer spending. But if you have an economy and, you know, and people like to look at the American economy as being one of a great American middle class, and that has what has been looked at upon the world and why so many people have come to this country to be part of a great, strong American middle class. You know, our view, though, is you can't have a strong American middle class if you're having median wealth numbers of 3000 4000 $5,000 because you don't have financial security for that little type of wealth. And as the uh, people of color population continues to grow, particularly African-American and Latino, but we still see very low wealth numbers, we think that this, you know, threatens the American economy as a whole. I think the racial wealth divide is one of the greatest challenges to America's 21st century economy. And, uh, you know, so it's no longer a question of how are we going to help these particular communities, but how are we going to ensure that America has a middle class, uh, a strong middle class throughout the 21st century? You know, I think some of this, you need to look back and understand how did America get an American middle class to begin with? A lot of people might assume that America's always had, you know, a majority middle class country, but this isn't true or had in a, was in a country where, you know, many people had a decent amount of wealth to help them through good and bad times. But most of the American middle class was really developed around the 40s and 50s coming out of the Great Depression with, with, with the New Deal being something to help get the country back on its feet, as well as, and in particular, post-World War II with a very strong economy and massive investments into the American population. And this is what created the great American middle class that emerged in the 40s and 50s, uh, made whites majority homeowners for the first time. The majority of whites became homeowners for the first time. And it's been estimated that more money was spent in investing in the American middle class than there was spent in the rebuilding of Europe, just to get an understanding of how much investment occurred through subsidies around homeownership, higher education, 
discuss how the construction of roads and how that uh, helped strengthen employment opportunities. But of course, in the 40s and 50s, this country was still a legally segregated country, and uh, African Americans uh, weren't allowed to be included in this uh, investment. And uh, Latinos actually oftentimes weren't even allowed into the country or citizenship and also faced discrimination. So, uh, you know, our analysis is we have to have an investment into a 21st century American middle class if we want the uh, legacy or the history of a strong American middle class to continue in the 21st century. And as Chuck Collins' book says, born on third base, a lot of us even, you know, I recognize it's one of the great truths that many people don't seem to absorb, is to be born in this country is to be born on a base. Uh, from the time I lived in Togo in West Africa, I have a sense of how far ahead I already was, even if I was getting what was considered just a volunteer allowance there. I was still so advantaged with my education. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk a lot more about those factors and what could be changed to make this possible for prosperity now, as your organization says. But first, I want to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Diedrich Asante Mohammed. He is one of the co-authors of The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class. He is part of Prosperity Now. He's a senior fellow there. He's got an illustrious past, including association with the NAACP. He was founder of The Racial Wealth Divide, which is now called Prosperity Now. And there's a lot more I want to learn about you, Dietrich, in a moment. But overall, folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Find out about Northern Spirit Radio on northernspiritradio.org. We've got links to the folks that we interview, and you'll find a lot more information. You'll find a direct link to the report I just mentioned as well on our site. Also, there's a place to post comments. Make our communication two-way by posting your comment. Raise up your voice. We need your voice. And that's something that community radio does so well. It provides an alternative to mainstream media, which has a vested interest in protecting the interests of the wealthy uh, in for some of us, we may be the wealthy, but we are poorer by the lack of a strong voice, and community radio helps balance that out. So start by supporting them. You can also support Northern Spirit Radio by clicking on Donate when you come. We are supported entirely by listener donations. Click on Donate to help us out. Again, we're with Diedrich Asante Mohammed. And before I go back to the report, Diedrich, I want to talk a little bit about your history. I've already mentioned I grew up in a fairly affluent community, although I guess you'd say I was on the wrong side of the tracks, rather, because I was part of this 12 kids family, really lower income. We used, you know, secondhand clothes going to school and and so on. So that informs part of what I know is challenging and possible in our society. What's the perspective you bring to it? You Obviously, if you worked with NAACP, you've got a lot of input from a lot of folks who've had a much more challenging upbringing than I did. Sure. I mean, uh, my upbringing I was born, you know, to a decently, you know, pretty strong, I guess, middle class. I mean, definitely, you know, I think real middle class, not uh, too often times in our society. We look at middle class and are thinking of households with median income of 100000 200000 Everybody considers those middle class, right? But the median household income, household income, not individual, median household income in the United States is right around $56,000, right? So I think, you know, I was, uh, my mother is a white woman from the South. My father is a black man from the South. 
at that time period, it was uh, irregular. I think they just got married a year after it was made legal uh, across the nation for interracial marriages. And so, you know, they came together and them together, my mom working in daycare, my father having a, a government job. We definitely was in the middle class, but then eventually uh, there was a separation that led to a divorce. And at that point, the household, me, my mother, and my sister would be considered low-income, you know, qualifying for food stamps and all these other types of things. But, but you know, we weren't in the situation of many others who fall into those difficult times because my because we were in a fairly prosperous area. My mother had uh, many friends who were much more economically secure. So we were able to get housing. Uh, we were able to be put in a one-room basement, but still at a pretty cheap rate. People would give us money to help us with uh, groceries or give us old cars. And so we didn't have to actually go on government welfare. We kind of had a social welfare that helped us uh, keep going through those challenging economic times of five or six years. So I've had the, you know, experience of, you know, being fairly normal middle class, uh, being in a very much more challenging uh, economic time. And now I'm actually doing quite well when you look at national stats. Uh, my wife's a pharmacist. I do well in the nonprofit world. And so now I'm much closer to a higher income space than I've ever been in my life. So I've had the opportunity to personally experience, you know, I guess a wide array of economic experiences. And then, of course, I've done a lot of different types of work, uh, working in local middle-class communities. I've worked at a maximum security prison for women. I've done organizing in Harlem and have lived in uh, neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. So I've also got to you know, see firsthand, though it might not always be my personal experience, you know, concentrated poverty and intense poverty as well. And that's wonderful to have, to be able to see from the middle, from the lower areas, the higher areas, to see how it looks. Which area is a better way to live in? Do you like it in the middle, lower, or upper? <laughs> what's, what's more fun for you? <laughs> it, it's, it, it's always more fun to have, at least for me, it's always more fun to have more income and more resources, uh, but it doesn't. That doesn't mean I uh, like to or even try to cluster myself with only with people who are only in that similar economic situation. And the great thing about having, you know, income and wealth and resources is that you can choose where you want to go. When you have a, a lower income, you sometimes can't choose where you want to go. You can only be where you're allowed to be. And uh, you know, and so I try to make it effort in my personal life to make sure that. I go to places that are integrated, not just uh, racially, uh, but more so even socioeconomically. And I think I had a unique experience growing up in a place called Columbia, Maryland, which is a planned community and was a community designed to be integrated, not just racially, but economically. So they made sure that there were apartments, townhouses, and single-family homes all in the same neighborhoods, and these kids would go to school together. And that was fairly successful, particularly for the first 30 or 40 years. And so that, again, kind of experience of, of, of having you know, friends across class lines and race lines that was important to me and something I try to maintain. I in no way would ever disparage the pains of lower income living. I, I know that there's tremendous challenges there. But I do have a sense that as people get into the higher stratosphere with respect to wealth, that there's some wealth that is non-monetary that they lose. Part of my observation of this was my time when I was in the Peace Corps in West Africa. In Togo, I saw how the people pulled together and the wealth of the community was held together so that actually 
if one person was having had food, then everybody had food. <laughs> that, that's the way I saw it. Whereas I think uh, for a, a person who's middle class here, there's walls that we don't go beyond very often. And so I think that what you're doing, you know, connecting different socioeconomic groups, uh, even as your income rises, I think that keeps part of the wealth that is divided. Did you experience some of that wealth? I, I think you were alluding to it when you were saying, even as you, you know, you had a single parent household, there were people helping out to keep you out. That's, that's part of the wealth. And it's not doesn't, re, it isn't reflected on your 1040 form when you submit for your taxes. So that's, that's exactly right. And I think even kind of what you were getting about, about, you know, a lower income people having a greater recognition of communal wealth. I think there's a there's a, you know, a great false notion in this society that, you know, the way people succeed is just through their own individual efforts. But, of course, all of us know that it wasn't just our own individual efforts that got us where we are today, but that it was a community, for better or for worse, that helped shape us and have put us on a path to where we are today and that we all utilize community resources. Whether you're driving down the street, you didn't pave that street. You didn't pay yourself just to have that street paved, you know, we're using electricity. There are all of this infrastructure that was uh, created through community or government investments. And then, of course, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, more personal, the, the, the idea that, that I might have a friend that could help one of my daughters you know, get their first part-time job. Uh, Chuck Collins writes a lot about all of these different aspects of wealth and opportunity that come from being in places where, you know, people do have a decent amount of wealth. They have a strong income, all those doors that open. And conversely, if you don't have that, a lot more doors appear closed to you. So uh, I do think, you know, that's one thing that is, I don't think it's determined by your economic status, but I think we oftentimes lose sight as we get higher up the income or wealth scale. We start believing the myth that it is only about us and that we have to only rely on ourselves versus being part of a community, a family. And, you know, there's something special about that and I think very kind of uh, natural to our, actually, as, as the title of the show, very connected to our spirit that people can lose touch with as they really think it is all about them and what they particularly own. Ego almost dictates that you have to say, yeah, I'm doing well because I'm a good guy. I'm doing well because I have talents. I'm doing well because I put in the work at the right point. There's a whole portion of the report which talks about how the wealth gap was encouraged and supported by our government, particularly up until the mid-60s, where it was particularly pernicious in so many aspects. Could you talk about some of those? Because I think there... Having grown up white myself, and my father served in the Korean War, so therefore, yes, you have rights to a certain amount of training and funding, and you, you, you can get loans for homes, etc. All those things which were not equally divided in our society. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that gets a part of this radical notion of the racial wealth divide or why it's hard for people to deal with these issues, because people do want to believe that success means you did something right. And so the reason people are prosperous is because, and the reason this country's prosperous is because we were doing things right. And this report does highlight historically, you know, a lot of prosperity can also come out of doing things wrong. And again, when I say racial inequality, the foundation of racial inequality is racial economic inequality. I, you know, I'd point back to, you know, I don't think it wasn't personal issues that led to Europeans taking the land of Native Americans. It was economic desire, economic want, and it created a lot of wealth for Europeans, but it came at the expense of the indigenous people here. The same thing with the enslavement of Africans. It wasn't 
you know, we try to talk about race. We talk about race relations. Like the primary issue is people getting along with each other. But again, I see the primary issues as being economic, and that there was a desire to have, you know, forced labor, and and the Africans, you know, were the people that were utilized for that, and that was the foundation of racial inequality. It wasn't race relations; it was racial economic inequality. And again, as I've noted, the country has spent, you know, billions and continues to spend billions in investment in wealth and asset development for Americans, but has yet to be willing to do that for those that have historically been disenfranchised. Uh, One thing our organization likes to note a lot or talk a lot about is the tax system, and that today the country still spends. You know, we have to look back to slavery. We don't have to look back to the New Deal or the taking of indigenous land. Today the country spends annually over $650 billion a year in asset development, oftentimes through tax deductions, tax credits, things related to savings for college or home ownership. But these tax deductions or what have you disproportionately go to the wealthiest in society. So we're spending $650 billion a year in asset development, mostly for those who already have some level of wealth and want to have higher wealth versus those who are asset poor. And you know, people are going to say there's not enough money to deal with these issues. But if we just took that $650 billion and actually invested in those with little wealth, I think we could really help get this country much more on the right, on the right path of a strong uh, and growing uh, American middle class that's inclusive for the first time. I want to remind all listeners that there are two websites that you should check out. You can find these links via NordenSpiritRadio.org, but the two links I can put right in your memory right now, one of them is ProsperityNow.org, and Dietrich Asante Mohammed is Senior Fellow on the Racial Wealth Divide at Prosperity Now. And he's my guest here today for Spirit in Action. The other website I want to mention is inequality.org. And if you come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, you can listen to my interview with Chuck Collins of that organization. They work together to produce this report, The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class. If I could add that uh, we also have a Facebook page called Bridging the Racial Wealth Divide. And we try to put up the articles that are highlighting different aspects of racial wealth inequality, reports from all organizations that are doing this type of work. And I think it's a nice, easy way for people to see, you know, kind of what is the newest research, newest topics of discussion relating to racial wealth inequality. So, again, you can go on Facebook and just like and subscribe to the Bridging the Racial Wealth Divide Facebook page. And then also note that we have a podcast called the Race and Wealth Podcast, where we talk with leading scholars and community leaders as well about the work they're doing around uh, racial economic inequality. So those are some other resources for your listeners. And so this report, if it was only an indictment of the past, would be important. But still, what really is going to help us have prosperity now is to have solutions. And this report, again, The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class, it talks about the solutions, particularly with respect to government programs. Could you highlight a couple of them that might be relevant? And again, folks, you'll find a link to the report on NordenSpiritRadio.org and ProsperityNow and Inequality.org. You'll find it in all those places. But could you highlight, Diedrich, a couple of the solutions? How can we change this to start eliminating the wealth gap? Yeah, and you know, and again, to highlight, and the reason we talk about the past is because we think it'll help you understand your current context, and as you're saying, help point you in the right direction of what we need to do to move things forward. And you know, one of the biggest things again is we talk about turning right side up or upside down tax code. 
we should stop investing $650 billion a year and further concentrating wealth. We should change the tax deductions, the tax rules to make sure that actually if society's saying, yes, people should pay less taxes because we want to support their asset development, that we do that among low-wealth households. Because I don't think most Americans, you know, really want to cut taxes and cut deductions so that the wealthy can become even more wealthy. I think we, what we want is a strong economy overall, and we want those who are economically insecure to be more economically secure. So we should turn right side up or upside down a tax code. Another thing, you know, we also you know, highlight very important issues like home ownership. You know, African-Americans, Latinos have never become majority homeowners as whites did you know, after World War II. So we need to look at what type of programs are we going to develop to increase home ownership for lower income, a low wealth people that is sustainable and that isn't led by uh, speculators who are trying to get loans that they know can never be paid off, but actually developing sustainable loans for more moderate income, lower wealth communities. We also talk about the, you know, again, the issue of employment. Employment is still a big issue. Uh, in 1963, Dr. King had his march on Washington for freedom and jobs. A lot of people forget that it, there was an economic component to that march. And in 1963, African-Americans had twice the unemployment rate of whites. In 2017, African-Americans still have about twice the unemployment rate of whites. And so we do need to um, make sure that African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans are better pulled into the labor market and have a living wage job. So it's a broad, holistic piece. I think one thing that we also ask people to look at at the federal, at the state, local level, and even at a local nonprofit level is to do more of a racial, racial equity analysis of your program. We oftentimes don't look at, you know, we put forward these policies and programs that we don't see what type of impact is this having on hopefully creating a more equitable society or is it actually, in fact, strengthening inequality. And I think if we did that for all of our policies, we could at least make sure that if we make a mistake or if we go in the wrong direction, we can fix that. But right now, it oftentimes is too uh, so unclear about what direction we're going in until we look back 10 years later and then say, oh, yes, and, and just continue to keep uh, racial wealth inequality going or made it even worse. So having a racial equity analysis, again, at, down to the nonprofit level with your services, up to uh, city, state, and federal level policies. So we, we need that enacted regularly. It's so amazing that we ignore this kind of common sense. If you take a wrong turn, you better check yourself within a mile to 10 miles. If you wait 100 miles, you've just <laughs> caused 200 miles of That's right. uh, wasteful driving. And we do that as a nation far too often. I'd like to delve into some detail, and I'm not even sure if you have all the information about this. You you did just mention it, though, Dietrich, the subprime loan stuff, which was at the root of what led to the Great Recession. I assume that, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you know better, that that actually led to more home ownership by minorities, blacks, Latinos, etc. that it actually, because they were allowed to buy homes, get loans, for homes that they couldn't afford, but they had home ownership for a year or two or five before the whole system crashed. Is that true? Do you know that home ownership did or didn't go up for minorities because of those programs? Yes, home ownership rates, and I don't have the years in front of me, but home ownership rates did go up, though I think, at least for African Americans, it might have maxed out even before the Great Recession. It might have maxed out in 2006, 
instead of uh, 2007. But I think there was an increase, though. Even with the increase, it was never uh, to a level of 50%. African Americans never got to a level of 50% home ownership. So it was a brief increase in uh, home ownership, and then you know, and African Americans, Latinos, you know, obviously haven't recovered back to a you know high 40s home ownership rate. They're much more now in a low in a low 40s home ownership rate. But I think the biggest problem here was that the financial industry was not only making loans and selling them off, which is why they didn't care if people could pay or not, because it became a business to give a loan, then sell it off. It used to be a bank gave you a loan and then they expected you to pay you, you know, pay back. And they wouldn't, they'd be hesitant to make a bad loan because they know if they made too many bad loans, it's run them out of business. But then the mortgage uh, industry started becoming one where no one actually took responsibility for the loans. People just made a loan, then sold it off, and then sold off again. And this is what created such a massive financial crisis because it wasn't even that one person couldn't pay a $100,000 loan. This 100000 bad loan was sold 20 times. And so now that $100,000 loan not being paid off was having a negative $2 million impact. And this happened with billions, trillions of dollars, and this is what caused the economy to uh, crash and then led to massive unemployment. It was kind of two phases. One, there was a dry up of credit, the kind of stock market going down, but then this led to unemployment rates going up. And so even those who didn't get homes that they couldn't afford, they oftentimes, you know, people were still sacrificed because the economy went down and they lost their jobs. And so maybe they could have afforded their home. <laughs> they kept their job. And now the fact that if you had a good mortgage, a good loan, that you didn't have your income like you used to, also caused a great increase in foreclosures in African-American Latino communities. I was told at one point, previous studies always said that during recessions, that upper-income folks were hit more heavily than low-income folks because, in part, their assets were based on stock market and so on. When stock market crashes, those who have investments in stock market lose value. That's typically what happens. I don't think that's true of the Great Recession. That is to say, the wealthiest people ended up being even more wealthy at the end of the Great Recession, the recovery right after it. Is that true of the numbers you've seen, Dietrich? Well, what, you know, what I've looked at, you know, more, had more focus on is the racial dynamics. So what you clearly saw, and because whites have more wealth, you can kind of take some learnings from this about the wealthy as a whole. But it is true that the stock market, has been rebounding at a much faster, stronger rate than almost any other level of the economy. And so, and only the wealthiest Americans have significant amounts of money in the stock market. I mean, most Americans have some money in retirement, but particularly have money outside of retirement in the stock market. Only the wealthiest have enough money to pay bills, you know, have a little savings, and then invest in stocks. And so, the wealthiest Americans have been doing the best in this recovery. You know, and again, the stock market uh, breaking records doesn't really do much for a low, moderate income Americans. Uh, what, you know, it does affect all Americans, the stock market crashes, because that means is when, you know, you can start losing jobs and having a much stronger economic impact. And two, you know, I would like to note, you know, it's one thing if you have $50,000 in stocks and then the value goes down to 25000 and you've lost $25,000. And that might look like that's a really big impact on you. But I would argue that for a person making $20,000 a year and they had $1,000 in savings and they lost, you know, $500, that actually that loss of $500 is a much bigger impact on their life 
than the $25,000 loss in the stock market. Because, again, stocks go up and down. Most people don't rely on that for day-to-day living or even for emergencies. They utilize that for a long-term return. Uh, but when you have $1,000 in your savings account, that is meant to be your immediate savings. It has a much bigger impact on your life. And if you don't have a savings account, it's just your checking account. That might mean you can't pay rent. And so when we say the rich are more impacted, we have to figure out what we really mean by impacted. You know, there's one more thing I want to look at, Dietrich, before we have to disengage from the phone, and that is your personal experience. I love seeing people doing good work for the world in all of the ways they can do that, often peace, justice, environmental. Those are some of the ways I love the best. You're doing that work both through what you did with the NAACP and what you're doing with Prosperity Now. What motivates you and you know what's part of your roots? You, you gave us a little bit of your background growing up with your mother and father. What was the spiritual, religious, the, the big picture motivation that motivated you and sustains you now? Sure. Well, again, come back to my parents. My father grew up, grew up as a witness of the civil rights movement. He grew up Little Rock, Arkansas, for a good part of his life. And so he saw, you know, the kind of integration of schools in Little Rock and had classmates participating in that. My mother turned into a civil rights activist when she was a college white woman in the South and, you know, did protests and met with King and all these types of things. So as I was being raised, that type of, uh, of knowledge and history was shared with me. So I had always looked actually at social political leaders with strong religious foundations, whether it was Dr. Martin Luther King, whether it was my namesake, uh, the theologian, the German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whether it was Gandhi, who had a big influence on me, or Malcolm X. And my mother uh, became United Methodist minister when I was about 12 or 13. Her father was United Methodist minister. So I you know, was pretty involved in the church, United Methodist Church, youth leader, and all these types of things. Went to college, studied political science, always interested in racial justice, had read about 90% of Dr. King's books by the age of 13, and then decided that I would go to Union Theological Seminary as a place to kind of have a more religious uh, focus. But even when I went to Union Theological Seminary, I had already converted to Islam, but I still thought that Union Theological, with its history of dealing with black liberation theology, would be a great place and was able to kind of do an interesting mix of sociology economics with a kind of philosophical and religious base while I was at Union, and uh, then eventually got into this economic work that I saw at the foundation with so many of the issues that I was trying to engage, uh, whether it's through activism or whether it's through work, as I said, at a prison or work at multicultural centers. And so over the last 14, 15 years, this has been the foundation of my work of race and economics. It sounds like a wonderful ride in a really good direction. I I can see how it made of you the powerful person that you are to do this work with Prosperity Now. Folks, we've been speaking with Dietrich Asante Mohammed. He is Senior Fellow, Racial Wealth Divide at Prosperity Now. There's a report that just came out a month or so ago called The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class. You'll find links on NordenSpiritRadio.org to Prosperity Now org inequality.org and to the Facebook page Bridging the Wealth Divide and even to the podcast on race and wealth that Dietrich mentioned. So you'll find all of that here and it's worth following up on. I'm thankful you're doing this work, opening eyes and giving prosperity for all for the country by the programs that you're helping move forward. So thanks for doing that work, Dietrich. Thank you and thanks for your show to uh, be able to share this information with people across the country.
Again, there are lots of links on NordenSpiritRadio.org to Diedrich Desanti Mohammed and the websites and resources I just mentioned, Diedrich's History of Work with Al Sharpton, the NAACP, the Institute for Policy Studies, and with Prosperity Now are all part of an impressive life of service in improving the world, so it's been a pleasure to spend time with him. Thanks also to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program, and we'll take you out with just a snippet of a song by Polar Levine, called Plunder, used as soundtrack for a documentary about the causes of the Great Recession meltdown. I was introduced to Polar Levine by Ben Groskup of PMN, the Progressive Music Network. Check them out, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here's a bit of Plunder by Polar Levine. Theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.